imagine going to a world where everything you were trained for is just thrown out the window and they're doing everything they can to help these people and mainly losing. Despite that, they kept going in every day and providing care and providing love and providing empathy. And it was just a really, really beautiful thing to witness. Hello, and welcome back to The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America. In this episode, director Matthew Heineman discusses his new documentary, The First Wave. Chronicling the terrifying first four months of the COVID-19 pandemic, the film spotlights the everyday heroes inside one of New York's hardest-hit hospital systems as they desperately try to navigate this once-in-a-century crisis which changed the very fabric of our daily lives and exposed long-standing inequities in our society. The first wave was screened as part of the DGA's documentary series, which aims to spotlight groundbreaking nonfiction films by presenting screenings of documentaries as well as conversations with their directors. In addition to the first wave, Mr. Heinemann's directorial credits include the documentary features The Boy from Medellin and Escape Fire, The Fight to Rescue American Healthcare. He is a two-time winner of the DGA Award for Outstanding Directorial Achievement in Documentary for his 2017 film City of Ghosts and his 2015 film Cartel Land. He was also nominated for the 2018 DGA First Time Feature Film Award for his debut narrative feature, A Private War. Following the documentary series screening of the film at the DGA Theater in New York, Mr. Heinemann spoke with director Mark Levin about filming The First Wave. Listen on for their spoiler-filled conversation. I don't know if I can talk, Matthew, after seeing that. It's uh, amazing. And I think um, you've created a classic that people are going to look back years from now. Really moved, deeply moved. Thank you. So let's uh, give us a little of the genesis. And I mean how it started, but also did you start with a larger cast? You know, how these characters emerged? Give us a little sense of how it started and then how you began to shape it and see where it was going to go. So, yeah, I think we, we sort of woke up like everyone did in, in early March and obviously was terrified about what might be coming to, you know, our city, our country. Um, and pretty quickly felt this just enormous responsibility to try, to try to capture this moment and reached out to hospital systems all around the U.S., pretty much got rejected from every single one, <laughs> and then sort of fortuitously, I guess, um, the only hospital that really said yes was the Northwell system, the lar- largest healthcare system in New York, um, and then we ended up embedding at uh, you know Long Island Jewish, which ended up being one of the hardest hit hospitals in the country. Um, you know, at that point, we obviously had no idea that New York would become the epicenter of the first wave. But I think the original impetus was to try to humanize this issue that at that point was so relegated to stats and to headlines, misinformation. <laughs> and, you know, there's so much talk about the heroicism of, of healthcare workers and frontline healthcare workers in this sort of war against COVID. And, and my, my initial goal was just to try to yeah, put a human face to it. 
well, you succeeded, you know, um, amazingly. The intimacy, the humanity is just uh, overpowering. But did you follow uh, a number of characters? You know, how, how did you, as you began to review the footage you were seeing, you know, kind of how did you begin to hone in or did you until later in the editing room decide these were the two or three that you were going to really focus on? No, I mean, initially the arrangement of the hospital was that we would only be allowed to film healthcare providers, not patients. And so I met Dr. DJ, I think the first or second day. And just, I mean, I think you can see why <laughs> I followed her. I mean, she had this sort of electric personality and ability to communicate the, the horror of it all. And, and just obviously just enormous amount of empathy and, and pathos that, that, you know, came through in the first minutes of meeting her. Um, I actually saw her down the hallway and I was like, can I talk to her, <laughs> to that woman? And, and yeah, and we, and we got along really well and I think, you know, gained her trust pretty quickly. And I think sort of filming right away with her after about a week in the hospital, they sort of came to terms with our process and, um, felt comfortable sort of allowing us to start to talk to patients. And that's when I met Brussels and, and Ahmed, um, and as two sort of essential workers, one, obviously Ahmed being a cop and Brussels being a nurse, just felt like um, they're very natural fits to, to follow. I, I had no idea, especially with Ahmed, where his story was going to go. It seemed, seemed like he was going to die. I mean, he had every, every single thing stacked against him um, in terms of pre-existing conditions and, and how badly his lungs were being impacted by the disease. And so... I think the the younger version of myself would have filmed with many more people, but I, I felt pretty confident that Dr. Jujay, Brussels, Ahmed, and then Kelly, the ICU nurse, um, I really committed to them pretty quickly. And so we filmed with a few, like really one other patient that didn't make it, you know, make the final cut of the film, but really, I, you know, those, those are the you know, providers and, and patients that I, that I committed to. How how large was the team that you worked with in the hospital when you were actually filming? We so it's naively thought that we'd be filming for like two weeks and then COVID would be over. So we were filming sort of sixteen, eighteen hours a day for those first couple of weeks. One or two person crews, um, two shifts normally. I was there for almost all of it, especially in those first couple of weeks, just trying to cast and you know I shoot as well. Um, but you know, really small footprint, often just camera in the room, um, no sound. We were taking sound ourselves. And um, yeah. What, you know, there's incredible macro work in the film. You know, incre- I mean, there's that one shot, you know, of the ECU of the eyelid uh, and then repeated, you know, when it closes. I mean, was that a, a you know, a decision in the beginning or you started looking at the footage or, you know, how did, you know, that, that ECU work? I think, you know, obviously this is a room full of filmmakers and, you know, I think having made a film in a hospital and especially with, with this film, um, seeing a row of people on ventilators, it, it's, a, it's a terrifying thing and it, it really looks like a sort of living morgue. And there's something about, Mr. Ellis's eyes, Ahmed's eyes, that just spoke to me, spoke to all of us. And, and it was sort of this 
they're inviting, there was strength to them. Um, it, It really just stood him apart from everybody else. And so, yeah, it wasn't some sort of like stylistic imprint that we went back and reshot. It's just his eyes always, always spoke to us and, and made us cry and made us feel and made us do things that other people's eyes didn't do. You said the crew was there. You know, you thought it would be two weeks. Obviously, nobody really knew. I mean, you see people watching their hands, you know, like how it was transmitted. What, what precautions, you know, did you take and what were you outfitted with? How could you see through the lens? I mean, you know, what were you wearing? Again, we knew nothing about how this disease was transmitted, and frankly, we still don't know a lot. Um, but especially at that time, you know, we were washing our hands all the time, washing every piece of equipment. I mean, we 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 developed safety protocols to the best of you know the available science at the time. We weren't wearing like big hazmat suits; we were just wearing scrubs that the hospital gave us, and. Um, you know, they gave us one N95 mask for two weeks that we kept reusing over and over again. Um, and then we put, a, you know, these things over N95s and sometimes wore glasses, but it was really hard to shoot with glasses, obviously, um, or at least for me and for, for most people. And so, yeah, we just sort of, but we were really, really nervous, obviously, about not only transmitting the disease amongst our crew, but also amongst the people we were filming. And, and, and then, obviously, as we started to film with, patients' families, you know, transmitting back and forth from the hospital. So we did our best to sort of bifurcate the team. And and, and, no, and nobody got sick on the production? That's the th- one of the things I'm most proud of on the film is no one got sick on the, on the production. So, I mean, it was, it was sort of a combination of, of luck and, um, you know, PP works. So I, I want to open it up, you know, to questions, but I do want to ask you, I mean, I know you've shown the film. It was out at the Hamptons Festival. You've had some screenings. I'm curious, you know, how it plays now, especially with all the controversy, you know, about vaccinations and intubation and what could, could, couldn't be done. You know, give us a little of the kind of feedback you've got. I mean, it's been by far the hardest film I've ever made. Um, And, most taxing film I've ever made. And it's been really, really nice screening, finally screening the film for people. And um, almost all the screenings our our subjects have been there for. And I think it's been just really emotional. Um, I think whether you were directly impacted or not, I think hopefully the film shows a side of COVID that most people haven't seen. And I think most of us were shielded from. And I think that's one of the greatest tragedies of COVID, especially in those early weeks and early months, is that we as an American public were so shielded from from the realities of what was happening inside hospitals, how people were living, how people were dying. Um, you know, we kept talking about healthcare workers being heroes, but we didn't see it. Um, we clapped for five minutes at seven o'clock. But, you know, I think the it, it it's really sad to me how divisive and political COVID became, um, you know, in, in another alternate universe, it's something that could have brought our country together and instead it further divided us. And, and that really makes me deeply sad. And so I think we just felt this big responsibility to try to capture what was happening. And, and I think now, you know, however many months later, um, I think it's, 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 all the screenings have been 
some of the most emotional screenings in my career and especially having the subjects there. Have you shown it at the hospital or to, you know, the, uh, some of the people that you worked with there? We're, we're having a big, or like, you know, New York premiere at the, at the, at, at the Beacon Theater with, with most of the healthcare workers from the hospital. So, um, that's, uh, we've, we've obviously shown it to, you know, all the people in the film and, and, um, stuff with the sort of broader sort of LIJ community. We're going to screen it for them. Well, certainly watching it, I mean, that's one of the things I was thinking about is, 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 is it the humanity? I think, you know, you've achieved what you set out to do. You showed us something that none of us really saw up close, like you brought us so intimately. And I wonder if it will, uh, help people overcome the uh, the divisions now when we we mention covid you know are you on this side are you on that side you know what did we you know i mean even the use of the governor you know who obviously is no longer the governor uh, but you used his voice you know in i thought very effectively um, how people reacted to that yeah i mean i think you know i get criticized with a lot of my films for not having talking heads or con or context or cards or anything. And, um, it, it is what it is. I, I, I very obviously clearly made a choice to not include Fauci or Trump. I did not want to, you know, make this a political film. Um, the reason Andrew Cuomo is in this film is, is not for political reasons. It's because for most of New Yorkers and frankly, for most of the country and a lot of the world, he sort of narrated that experience of the first couple of months. And so I tried to mimic that experience by using his, his, um, you know, pressers editorially. But you did include, you know, the, um, demonstrations, you know, obviously one of the main characters ultimately gets involved and that's an unbelievable scene where she intervenes with that young man who's confronting the police. Uh, were there any, uh, you know, discussions with you and your team about how much of that or should you include that and how did you decide that it was necessary? Yeah, I mean, you didn't have to be an epidemiologist or a scientist or a researcher to walk into the hospital and just look around and, you know, it was so clear after, especially after a couple of weeks, that this disease disproportionately impacted people of color. And so it wasn't a matter of sort of if we were going to include that in the film and sort of how, and, and it all sort of came out naturally through following Dr. Duget. Um, and then obviously when George Floyd was killed and, and um, we had this sort of national reckoning around race in our country and, and these empty streets became filled with, with protesters, um, you know, we just naturally followed where the story took us, which is following Dr. Duget out in the streets. And so, um, yeah, just sort of finding that balance of how that weaving that into the film was obviously took some time, but, again, it was never a question of sort of if, it was how. Final question before we open it up. You know, um, the rhythm of the film, the editing, you know, I saw you took an editing credit also. I mean, just talk a little about how you found that rhythm. Obviously, there's only so much of the horror one can take, and then the humanity, the intimacy, and then the hope, how you saw the rhythm of those playing as you put it together. Yeah, I mean, I don't, like to have a lot of rules in the edit and, and I always, all my films I have multiple editors on. I, I love the process of interrogating footage with, with others. And, and I, I generally cut on my own films too. And, um, I think one thing I say every day in the edit room, or I guess in this case, 
virtually in the editor <laughs> is, um, you know, let's let the audience feel those same things that I felt in the field, you know, as, as someone who, who shoots and is, is in the field, like we all know there's a, there's a certain feeling of, of emotion, of, of fear of the wind blowing through the trees or the silence of the streets or the chanting of the protests or wh- whatever that feeling is. Let's at least attempt to make people feel like they're on the ground with us. And so that's something I, I constantly say. I think I sort of had this artistic goal also. Of, uh, obviously I knew that we were going to be interweaving these multiple storylines, but I didn't want the film to feel chaptered. You know, I didn't want it to feel, um, I wanted to sort of feel like this one long poem. And, and so we, we tried really hard editorially that to have the juxtapositions between scenes speak to each other, whether it's two characters framed looking at each other, you know, cutting between scenes, whether it's sounds carrying in between scenes. Rarely do you ever hear music sort of coming out of a scene, coming into, you know, starting a new cue on the next scene. It's, we really tried to make these, these subjects speak to each other. Um, and so that was definitely a challenge over time. Um, but I think the, one of the big wins editorially was, was actually coming up with the title because we, we kept shooting through the summer and through the fall. And every time we tried to include those scenes in the film, they were great, great, there's great stuff that we had. It just didn't fit. And it, it just felt like we were pushing a square peg through a round hole. And so coming up with the sort of goalposts of March through April, excuse me, March through June and of the first wave, it just was sort of a coup and, and, and our, our character, our subjects like naturally arced over that time. And it just, it really, that was a big win in the, in the edit and, and ultimately obviously what the film became. Um, are there any questions from the audience? I'm, I'm just going to repeat your question for the, uh, the podcast, you know, uh, how hard it is to film in hospitals and did they ever say, you know, get out of here. You're not allowed to film this. Yeah. I mean, I think the, obviously we were, you know, a foreign entity in the, in this, in this, um, organism of the hospital. And, uh, but pretty quickly after a week or two weeks, everyone knew who we were. Um, and especially with, with Kelly, the, the ICU nurse who's on the, this, what's called the rapid response team in the, in the, in the hospital that, that goes to all the, the patients that are coding, we really like moved around fast through the hospital and got to know almost every floor and every per, you know person working there, and so there's there's definitely some sort of you know awkward moments or, or people sort of not being happy with us being there. But I think over time people really accepted us and 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 frankly were grateful that we were capturing this this you know historic time. And I think obviously especially healthcare workers were deeply frustrated. By, by the massive amount of misinformation that was happening outside of those hospital walls, and so um, of course there were moments that were that were you know awkward or tough, and dialogue need, need to happen. Um, but I think the overwhelming feeling was sort of mutual gratitude um, for for being together in this experience. If I could just summarize, you know, did the hospital want to review, you know, the, any of the footage or the cut, and were they? Uh, afraid of exposing what might be some of the shortages or some of the things they didn't have, which they felt they needed. Is there anyone from the hospital here that I shouldn't yeah. know? Any, any lawyers in the audience? No. Okay, good. Is it DGA? Yeah, good. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, uh, it was, as I said, I mean, I literally got rejected from 50 hospitals. I don't know. I mean, I had every person I knew in this world trying to help me get access to different hospitals and, you know, dozens and dozens and dozens of no's. I made a film on healthcare about 10 years ago called Escape Fire. And, and one of the main main subjects of the film, Dr. Don Burke, who's the former head of Medicare and Medicaid, you know, sort of a father figure in the world of healthcare. healthcare and he um, reached out to the head of Northwell and said, you know, you got to let this guy in. I, I trust him. You should trust him. And that just opened the door. And, and frankly, you know, their head of communications was was really forward thinking. And I think he, he saw the fact that this is, this is, there is an opportunity to document this. And, you know, I owe enormous amount of, I mean, <laughs> the film to those initial meetings of, of just, you know, trust building and, and openness to the process. And, and obviously this wasn't, you know, a lot of people, people were like, yeah, you can, you know, talk to our doctors on zoom after they get back from work. Or, you know, I was like, that's not what I'm doing. I, I want to be inside. I want to be on the ground. I want to live it. I want to breathe it. I want to feel it. And so, but yeah, of course, especially in those early weeks, PPE was extremely limited. We, I mean, we, we only were given one N95 mask. We were trying to source masks from China like everybody else was. And, you know, unsuccessfully, I think we wasted $5,000 on some fake N95 masks. Um, you know, we were literally doing everything we could to try to figure out how to get PPE. We, you know, Every single person who worked in the crew who had a family, we got, you know, uh, apartments or hotels so they could stay away from their families. I mean, we we did everything we could in those early days. I think you asked about editorial. You know, I had final cut uh, on the film, and um, but out of respect, obviously, we we you know we we had to show the film to the hospital, and um, you know, I think they're it's been a sort of a weirdly easy process. Honestly, they they they, they didn't have really any feedback other than they really loved the film so and you know i didn't want it there obviously there's a lot of like in, you know inner politics in the hospital and inner politics and sort of all that and, and there's been a lot of stories about that i just I, I wanted to focus on the people inside of it and not the sort of the machinations of of, of all that so uh just repeating uh, how, did, how did you keep it together in in you know such an emotionally charged uh, situation life and death day after day emotionally Oof. I don't like I don't like talking about <laughs> um, my own emotions but I, I guess it was hard yeah I mean it was definitely as I said it was definitely the hardest film I've ever made um, having been in a number of war zones and conflict areas and you can sort of come back to New York where, where I live and turn your brain off um, to a degree I mean obviously it all stays with you somewhere in here, but this film was inescapable. You know, you were living the same thing you were documenting. And so when I came home, there's no ability to turn off. When we all came home, there's no ability to turn off. Uh, it was just scary in some, some ways being at home and, you know, wiping off our food deliveries and our groceries and all this stuff. And, you know, we just had no idea how and when and if we were going to get sick. And so, um, and then obviously seeing so much death and, you know, we were seeing the, that upper echelon of the worst of the worst of the worst and people dying multiple times a day, every day. And so obviously in your head, you, you know, your mind starts to spiral, but I think ultimately, and I can speak on behalf of our, our entire crew, 
we felt just so inspired every single day. So inspired by the amazing humanity and beauty and love and care that, that the healthcare workers that we were following were providing, you know? And they imagined going to a world where everything you were trained for is just thrown out the window and they're doing everything they can to help these people and mainly losing. And so despite that, they kept going in every day and providing care and providing love and providing empathy. And it was just a really, really beautiful thing to witness. And so I think there are many moments where <laughs> we had meltdowns and we cried and, and, and other things, but I think the overwhelming feeling was just sort of gratitude. Um, and, and then I think for me, especially I just felt an enormous, enormous, enormous responsibility with this story, because I knew that, that no one really had the access that I had. Um, and so I just didn't want to screw it up. A question about, you know, what was really a very effective and moving and powerful use of drones in the film. Yeah. I mean, I think going back to the combining questions, I, I you know, there's a version of this film that's unwatchable, obviously. And, and, and so we were constantly in the edit room sort of trying to f figure out that throttle of, of reality <laughs> that we saw every day and the, the knowledge that obviously we wanted people to sit through a screening and not walk out. So, so finding the sort of balance in the space within the film. And I think there was like, you know, the, the city is a character as much as, as, uh, as anyone else. And so the empty streets the filled streets, the, the protests, um, and, and, and that visual language of, of sort of seeing it all from above was, was something that I, I just knew even from March. You know, we started, we started shooting drones in March just to sort of capture that sort of apocalyptic silence and, and, and quietude and, and, and um, emptiness. And so... Um, yeah, I mean, we almost at the end of every any shoot or... Uh, and probably more so than any other film I've ever made, I really committed to wanting to sort of see the city from above. And so sometimes we would just sort of tack it on at the end of, we, we didn't have any like drone operators. We were just throwing up drones ourselves. We, we didn't really not know how to use them. Um, and so, and are there any cops in this room? We, I mean, we did it illegally without permission and got caught a few times. Um, but Yeah. Is is really important uh, for me to sort of, and I think editorially it was important as well. A uh, question about what was your dialogue with the families, um, especially not knowing how their relatives might turn out, whether they'd survive or not? Yeah, I mean, I think it's sort of the same common denominator. Common denominator, excuse me, in, in in any documentary, and people always ask, you know, why does anyone anyone take part in a documentary? And I think it's some version of they want to be listened to, they want to be heard, they want the world to understand what they're going through. And I think, you know, what, what was so difficult about COVID on, is that how, how isolating it was. It was isolating for all of us who were, you know, who weren't involved in healthcare and stuck in our homes. Um, it was extraordinarily difficult inside the hospital and or outside the hospital with families because you're making these life or death decisions through a through an iPad or through a phone and and or saying goodbye to your family members through an iPad or through a phone, you know? And so that it was just 
it was really, really, really difficult. And so I think, um, sorry, I, I'm digressing, but I think the families in general felt like, you know, yeah, they wanted their, their story to be told. And I think that they felt um, maybe in some way this was to help connect to their, to their loved ones inside the hospital by taking part in it in some sense. Uh, you know, Alexis, Ahmed's wife, jokingly says that she thought that by having the camera in the room with him, he'd survive. Um, I'm not sure the camera made him survive, but, um, you know, we all grew quite close. And I think, um, yeah, it was extraordinarily emotional when he got out of that hospital. Um, and, and, you know, you see, you see, it wasn't every patient. It wasn't because the cameras were there that, that hundreds of people lined up those halls. People fell in love with him in the hospital and they needed wins. They needed to see that, you know, for every 12 patients that died, that, that one would survive. I, I'm, I'm not, there's stats that might, might not be right, but, you know, it really felt like you're constantly losing. So when somebody like Ahmed would walk out of the hospital, they celebrated it. And you, you see it in Kelly's eyes on that close up as she looks out and sees him drive away. Like they were so deeply impacted by, by his, his um, survival. And and how is Ahmed doing? And and the uh, and how is the nurse? How are they today? They're they're doing they're doing well. Um, he's he's back at work. Um, she's back at work. Um, I'm the, the the godfather to baby Leon. <laughs> um, and yeah, it, it's also just been really nice having made films sort of on the edges of good and evil to like, you know. I made a film City of Ghosts where I, you know, really got close to the subject, but because of Trump and because of a variety of factors, we never were able to really travel with the film together. So with this film, it's just been an amazing experience to be able to be with our subjects and we've all grown quite close and now they've all grown, grown quite close as well. So, Well, let's uh, thank Matthew one more time, an incredibly powerful and important film, Matthew. Thank you so much. Thank you all for coming. Thank you, Mark, for doing this. Thanks for listening to another DGA Q&A. If you'd like to hear more from our documentary series, check out episode 325, featuring director Amir Questlove-Thompson discussing his documentary film, Summer of Soul, or When the Revolution Could Not Be Televised, with Amir Barlev. The Director's Cut is available wherever you listen to podcasts. And please share, subscribe, rate, and review. We'd love to hear your feedback, and you can help fellow film buffs find the show. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America 